From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, the Pandemic Parental Juggling Act, it makes grown adults want their parents. I think for the first time in my career of having a child as well, I um, called my mom and I was like, Mom, I'm drowning. Ben, the pandemic has revealed just how many people can work remotely. That might bring new life to charming but struggling rural communities starved for new residents, like Walden, Colorado, which was once bustling. We had a movie theater, a natural food store in town. It was a very vibrant place. Now storefronts sit empty, but the town is full of hope. And later, a week's worth of meals delivered to your door by your kid's school? We are not just supporting them academically, but we're meeting their needs when it comes to food. Thank you to everyone who made a gift yesterday to support Colorado Public Radio on Giving Tuesday. On a day of global giving, you helped make an impact right here at home. This year, in-depth, fact-based news coverage and access to soul-filling music on CPR has been a lifeline for many of us. You make it possible through your support. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The challenges of remote learning have been a big focus for us this week. And today, I want to reintroduce you to two Denver moms. We first talked to them in the summer as they decided what their boys' schooling should look like. Tina Carroll's son, Chase, is a first grader. Tina works full-time. She's a single mom. Hi again, Tina. Hi. And Natalie Perez's son, Roman Ortiz, is a fourth grader. Their family owns a Mexican restaurant. Natalie, good to talk to you again. Hi. Good morning. When we spoke at the start of the school year, DPS offered two options. Uh, You could start out with remote learning and then switch back to the classroom in October or go remote for the entire semester. And Natalie, at the time, you told us that you'd all decided to keep Roman home for the long haul. Let's listen to that. We talked about it. I told him he had options and if he wanted to go to school, he could. I'm just trying to like make it as least stressful for him as I can. And I hope, I mean, I hope it goes well. I I just try to understand that this is what we're going through right now and we'll get through it and it's okay. All right. Tell me what your daily schedule's like now with Roman and the restaurant, Natalie. Um. So we wake up and he has a, a light breakfast and then he starts school at eight. And then around nine we head out to work he um stays connected and i connect the internet to my phone and like he'll do school while we're in the car and then once we get there he'll go straight to his space and then he'll just sit there and do his work for the rest of the day he um yeah that's pretty much it yeah so so he's connected during the commute to the restaurant and then what is this space like where he's learning at the restaurant So he has a table where he's like close to me, like I can still see him, but he's like away from everything. And you've got to be minding him and minding the demands of the restaurant and the customers coming in, I gather. Yeah, it's it gets crazy sometimes. I'll ask you 
more about that in a bit. Uh, Tina, as I said, you work full-time. You wanted Chase back in school ASAP. In the meantime, you found a daycare where his online learning would be supervised, and you juggled your budget a little bit and found money to pay for that. Uh, Let's hear what you told us back then. Even though I know that he's resilient and able to like adapt very easily, I'm nervous for him, but I'm going to do everything possible. I'm hoping that by sacrificing and putting him in the facility, he still gets a school day kind of atmosphere, I would say, where he still gets to socialize, he still gets recess, he gets to meet people. And so it was like a facsimile of school. How did that work out, Tina? Is Chase still there? No, unfortunately, he's not there anymore. We tried it out, but I think um, that facility in particular and other facilities um, really didn't have a full grasp or understanding of what remote learning would look like for for people in several different schools and districts still trying to come together. Mm -hmm. I think it was yet really difficult for them. Um, I mean, I would get calls at work about him not being online. I'm like, wait, I dropped him off. What do you mean? And so it became, it became very frustrating. And then I um, actually went to him going to school. So he went through several transitions this year so far. So we went to school for a little while and that only lasted for a couple of weeks. And so now I'm I'm juggling my schedule with several other um, college student schedules that are all trying to work with me to help me do remote learning with him while I still work. Oh, so you've sort of hired tutors then? Yes, that is correct. That can't be cheap. No, it's not cheap. I'm at the place now where I'm managing penny to penny. I put the minimum payments on bills. I am just keeping my head above water at this point. I can't tell you how grateful I am that you share that. It, it, that must not be easy to say that. And I'm I'm grateful that you uh, let us in on on what you're experiencing. And so I want to know how both of your boys are doing. How, how do you think, uh, Natalie, Roman's academics are doing? How is he doing emotionally? Um, academically, he's doing okay. Um, he's really smart and he adapts easily. He learns really fast. Um, he struggles a little with math and it gets a little frustrating for him, but academically he's okay. Um, mm-hmm. Emotionally, he um, we're actually going to start seeing a therapist this month. He is having trouble balancing out his emotions. He it's just really hard for him to like handle the stress he's under right now. Um, he's cried to me a couple times and told me he he's really stressed out. So we're trying to figure out how to take care of that right now. Um, It's really hard. So he has trouble regulating his emotions right now? Is Is it that he's quick to get frustrated or that he seems sad a lot? Help me understand. So he gets frustrated. Um, I think seeing his teacher through the monitor and not being able to like really express what he's feeling in that moment, especially because 
it's like oh you everybody has to be on mute right now and you can't blurt out anything hmm. and he starts to get really frustrated he um he starts to cry and or he'll like act out it's just I'm just seeing a part a side of him that I had never seen before and it's scary and it's hard but we're trying to figure out how we're going to handle that right now. Uh, just briefly, has it been easy to find a therapist or not? So we saw his doctor um, last week and she connected us with someone. And that was easy. He won't see her as much as he would if we weren't in a pandemic, but mm-hmm. he'll be able to see her in person once a month. And that's our first step for now. Yeah, it occurs to me that if you were going to seek help from a therapist, because you're struggling with remote learning and not feeling connected to someone, the last thing you'd want is for that to be on a screen as well. Tina, how's Chase holding up academically, emotionally? Um, I think Chase is doing really well. Of course, that'll be confirmed for me for parent teacher conferences coming up next week. Okay. But um, from the looks of it, I think he's doing really well, but it is at a compromise of my time because I'm getting off late from work. And so I'm coming home, I'm going over words, I'm trying to still validate what he's doing, what I think he's doing in the classroom at home at night. And so puts me doing emails way later in the early hours of the morning, but hey, it's my child. But it sounds like to some extent you can only be so connected to his education. I mean, at a certain point, you, of course, have to focus on your job and you have to trust him. You have to trust the people around him. You have to trust the system, I guess. You are so correct. And that's what makes it a little bit difficult, not to mention that He's still going through the everyday stages of being a Mm seven-year-old. Like, you know how many times I got up in the middle of the night to walk him back to his room to sleep in his own bed? So he's still managed. He's still going through the regular little kid things. Like, I'm still trying to manage just being a mom on an everyday basis. You know, lest this sound too much like a sob story, I I, I have to think that there are moments of joy, moments of... Um, maybe your boys lighting up with understanding in school or um, of, of connection with them. And maybe we could focus for a moment on that. What have been the wins for you as a parent, Natalie? Um, I've become so close to him. We got sick together and we quarantined together and just seeing how mature he is um, I got to see him just start to become a t- teenager almost because mm. he he's nine. He's nine now. And like just the way he took care of me when I was sick, to me, I was like, oh, my God, wow, you're you don't have to do this. And he would like bring me soup and he would ask me, do you need anything? Are you okay? How do you feel today? And I was like, oh my God, I should be taking care of you right now. But it was hard because I was really sick and I couldn't. And just having moments like that with him where I get to see him grow and get to see his personality develop. I think that's 
that's really special. I should say, Natalie, you and your, I think your entire household came down with COVID-19. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you're doing better. Have there been lingering effects? Yes, for me, there has been. Um, I had a relapse over the weekend and it was really scary. I thought I was going to get all the symptoms all over again. Um, I was sick for a few days and I'm starting to feel better, but um, I sweat a lot now. I Hmm. really never used to sweat and my heart, my heart, I, it just, it's irregular now. And it's just, I don't know. I'm trying to mentally come to terms with that and Hopefully it's not something I'll have to live with for the rest of my life. I hope that too. Tina, Carol, uh, tell me about a win, a parenting win with Chase. Um, I think for me, it's just Chase really becoming a mini-me. He like takes over <laughs> his whole schedule. He's like, he'll call me at work and be like, Mom, did I miss tutoring? It's at 3.30, right? I'm like, yes, it's at 3.30. You got one hour. When the clock says 3.30, he was like, well, I'm already on. I'm sitting here. I'm waiting for someone to let me in the room. And so those are like wins for me where I'm like, he's really just taking a hold of it and just like running with it. So that's been exciting to see. And I try to celebrate those moments. Yeah, it must be so comforting, what I hear in both of your answers. It must be so comforting when a parent realizes, you know what, my kid's going to be okay when they're on their own. You know, they left to their own devices, the kids are all right. I'm, I'm curious, Natalie Prez, uh, I mean, gosh, dealing with the restaurant, dealing with your child's education, dealing with the illness... How have you managed at Barbacoa El Oso? That's the restaurant in Denver that your family owns. I know that there's not in-person dining, right? So it's takeout, maybe it's patio. Has that eased things a bit? Um, I mean, I it helps because I like to work. I like to have my mind occupied and being at work is kind of like therapy for me. Um, but right now, we had to close down our food truck. We had to close dining. We had to, like, we don't have, we only have carry out right now. And so it, it's really slow and our sales are starting to drop. And not only that, but during this time of the year, um, it's already slow. So right now, like, I don't know what next month will look like. Mm-hmm. So it's just, I don't know. I think right now I'm just trying to like keep everything together and just go with the flow and whatever happens, happens. And at this point, I'm just like, okay, okay, just I accept everything, whatever happens tomorrow. Oh, well. That level of surrender is remarkable. I think I'd probably be in knots. Um, Is that faith? What is that? What keeps you calm? Um, I don't know. I think just the way I grew up, just knowing I have no control over most things. Mm-hmm. And um, there's been points in our life where we've lost everything and we've been able to get back up. So at this point, I'm like, if we lose it, we lose it and we'll just figure it out from there. I think right now, worrying about that, I mean... 
I, I don't really want to worry about anything right now. Yeah. I just want to live in the moment. And even after I got sick, where I was really sick, and I was like, oh, my God, am I going to make it through this? I think that moment for me was like, okay, you you got it, whatever. You beat this. Yeah. You can continue. Okay, in just the last few seconds, maybe with a, a quick yes or no, uh, Tina Carroll, do you hope that Chase gets back into a classroom soon? Is that? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes, yes, yes. And we know yes. that we know the governor has created a task force to ensure that that happens as as quickly and as safely as possible. All right. So he's got an audience in you, Tina and Natalie. Just briefly, do you hope that uh, Roman goes back into the classroom? Yes, he's ready. I think he needs it. Needs it. I want to thank you both for sharing your stories with us and for being so candid. It, it, I'm really grateful for it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, maybe we'll check back in again. So, Natalie Perez's family owns Barbacoa El Oso in Denver. Her son Roman is nine. Tina Carroll is associate director of housing and dining at a local university. Her son Chase is seven. Both boys are enrolled at Rocky Mountain Prep Southwest in Denver. The oil industry here has hit its roughest patch in decades. Production has dropped sharply as COVID saps demand for travel and thus fuel. We're going to get some perspective on this from CPR's Ben Marcus. Hi, Ben. Hey, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, all things considered. Just how bad is it for the oil and gas industry right now? Well, they're not doing okay. Uh, Oil and gas drilling has fallen to historic lows here in Colorado. There are only four rigs operating in the state, four drill rigs. Uh, I have data going back uh, 20 years. uh, And until recently, Colorado never had fewer than 16 rigs operating at one time. Uh, Dan Haley uh, runs the industry trade group, the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, and he put it this way. It's been a difficult year for, for our industry. And that is definitely an understatement. Uh, So oil production is still pretty high, but it is dropping. Uh, And oil production between May and August was down 13% compared to those same months a year before. Uh, And again, I have data going back to 2001. There was never a four-month period where oil production dropped that much in Colorado. It's curious that you say oil production is still high. I'm trying to square that with what you're telling us. They punched a lot of holes in the ground over the last 10 years, and so those wells are still producing. Okay. What's been the effect on people who work in the industry? Well, fewer rigs means fewer jobs. Uh, And so employment in the industry in September was down 18% compared to September of last year. That was more than any other industry sector in Colorado, even more than leisure and hospitality, which has been hit hardest by COVID. Um, Nearly 8,000 oil and gas workers filed for unemployment claims between mid-March and the end of October. Um, Bernadette Johnson is uh, an analyst uh, here for a Denver energy firm, and she says drillers just can't get much going when oil is at $40 a barrel. And that level, that price just doesn't support much drilling at all. $40 a barrel. What's, what's the perspective on that? Like how high does oil usually get? 
Uh, so I, I, obviously a higher is better for, for yeah. oil and gas producers, but 70 would be ideal, I think, to, to get a lot of production going. Okay. Uh, Colorado's break-even price is a little bit lower because some of the operators here actually own their mineral rights, and so they don't pay royalties, and so they actually have a lower break-even cost. But $40 a barrel is just too low. It is safe to say that this is just another impact of the pandemic. What are some of the specific contributors to this picture? Right. So the fact that oil is $40 a barrel is reflecting that there's little demand right now for oil. Uh, and oil is very dependent on transportation. So if people aren't traveling because of the pandemic by car or by plane, they're staying home, uh, that has meant this big drop. At the same time, Dan Haley, uh, who runs that industry trade group for yep. oil and gas, says that Russia and Saudi Arabia, they're flooding the market with oil uh, to try to break the back of American producers. I mean, it has been historic to see all of these factors sort of converging at one time in, in one year. And then you add on top of that new regulations that Colorado has passed on oil and gas operations. But it sounds like from foreign powers, there's actually an intentional fight, a war on American oil and gas. That's right. America has, uh, in the last 10 or 15 years, totally changed the geopolitical oil balance um, through uh, fracking. Tell us about the regulations that you mentioned there, Ben, in Colorado specifically. So these are sweeping rules. I've been here for 10 years. People have been fighting over these things, and now they're finally a reality. Uh, they'll take effect early next year, and they affect almost every stage of the oil and gas extraction process. Uh, most controversially, and probably most importantly, a 2,000-foot setback between new wells and occupied buildings. This has been a huge political battle for years. Uh, operators can apply for some exemptions within that. Um, but these drilling permits will be subject to regulators looking at the environmental impacts on nearby communities. Uh, they're going to look at aquatic habitats, critical wildlife species. Uh, certain chemicals won't be allowed for fracking. Flaring will be restricted. So this is a sea change for the industry. No doubt a focus on environmental justice, on fighting climate change. Uh, I guess that both sides are split on these new rules. Kind of. So the oil and gas industry says that they, at least they have some certainty now. Oh. Uh, I think if you have a set of rules in place, the smart engineers and the, the, the loads of capital that these billion dollar companies have, they can kind of figure it out. Uh, and even the environmentalists say that Colorado is once again a national leader uh, in environmental regulation. Reflecting, I suppose, the past winds on methane reduction, for instance, which is a powerful greenhouse gas. Where do things go from here, Ben? Well, given the nature of shale oil production, this fracking, there's really steep decline curves on these wells, meaning that they start to lose production a lot faster than your traditional well. So we may start to see if they're not out there drilling, there's only four rigs, again, operating in the state. Some people think five, but either way, <laughs> that's very few. Uh, you're going to start to see, I think, these wells uh, start to decline pretty fast. Um, now we have vaccine, uh, good vaccine news. That may mean that demand snaps back for travel uh, and things get back to normal, but we're just not there yet. You mentioned the efficiencies of big oil and gas, and that is reflected in a consolidation that we are seeing in the industry, just briefly. Yeah, bigger is better when uh, the cost to drill is higher. And so Anadarko Petroleum, which was the largest company, is now Occidental Petroleum. The second largest oil and gas company in Colorado, Noble, is now Chevron. Uh, and so we'll start to probably see more consolidation as we go forward. It will be fascinating to see how oil and gas does in a reopening of the economy in 
a post-vaccine world. So, Ben, we'll probably have you back on then. That's right. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you. CPR's Ben Marcus, monitoring how the pandemic and new regulations in Colorado affect the oil and gas industry here. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with school meals delivered right to your door. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. Sign up for The Lookout from CPR News, a daily dose of news from our newsroom into your inbox. It's a newsletter full of what every Colorado needs to know to start the day. Issues and reporting from and about every corner of Colorado. Top stories, important conversations, and reports from our reporters, as well as other trusted sources. Plus, plenty of reminders of what makes Colorado colorful. Get The Lookout in your email inbox every weekday. Sign up at CPR.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The whole family came down with COVID-19. Maru Gutierrez-Nunez, her husband and their two daughters. So they quarantined. I can leave my home because it's unsafe for me and for everyone outside. Food delivery wound up being a lifesaver. Not from Grubhub or DoorDash, but through the kids' schools. Fresh fruits and vegetables and... Some taquitos, tamales, uh, waffles, chicken nuggets, beans. She says the girls like buffalo sauce with their nuggets. Her daughters attend KIPP schools. Their classes this year have been mostly virtual. And this network of charters in Denver is piloting a food delivery program open to all of its families. KIPP Colorado CEO Tommy Amos says her community's been especially hard hit in the pandemic. The student population we serve is 98% students of color, and over 90% of students are on free and reduced lunch. Uh, so we know both from um, an economic perspective and uh, the racial dynamics, the pandemic has hit those communities. Uh, that is reflective of what our KIPP Colorado community is experiencing. But if these kids are already eligible for free and reduced price breakfast and lunch, why the need for these additional meals? Denver Public Schools still offers their food distribution sites across the city. Unfortunately, none of our schools are the food distribution sites. So we know that there can be barriers to accessing food pickup, whether it be transportation, work schedules, social distancing, or needing to quarantine. So this home delivery option has been really important for our families. And they get a week's worth of dinners and snacks and milk. And this isn't just an opportunity to feed kids. It's also a chance to employ people, delivery drivers. What's really exciting is that some of our students, if they're 18 and older or anyone 18 and older, can be employed through the program to deliver food to families. So it's really meeting uh, needs when we talk about both food insecurity and job insecurities that have all been impacted due to the pandemic. And it's an orchestration to prepare good food for 2,500 families and get it to their doorsteps. A choreography of schools, nonprofits, federal grants, and private donors. Dom Barrera is chief of staff at Bonda Dosa, a Denver-based social enterprise focused on food justice. Fundamentally, its mission is to increase access to fresh, healthy groceries. And he's part of this school-based collaborative known as the Colorado Food Cluster. When we initiated this whole project, we sat down and did a whole tasting and said this was really good, this wasn't good. 
you know, the, the tamales, the enchiladas, I mean, just all sorts of food that we would want to eat, right? Like, not just something that here, take this, you know, random food that we just want to serve you. But like, how do you make it unique to that community? Um, so that folks would not only eat it, but like it and want to continue participating. Food, after all, isn't just sustenance. It can be medicine. And along those lines, I'm happy to report that Maru Gutierrez-Nunez and her family have cleared COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking me. So we are totally out of COVID right now. So my husband back to work yesterday. So I don't feel any symptoms right now. So thanks God, yeah. The hope not only is for the Colorado food cluster to expand to more families in Denver, but that it carries on well into the summer. The identity of the American West is changing. How it's changing is the subject of The Modern West, a podcast from Wyoming Public Media. The host is a native of Walden, Colorado, west of Fort Collins, population 580. Melody Edwards puts her hometown front and center in the podcast's latest season, which is about the fate of rural communities. It's also about ghost towns. And Melody, welcome to our show. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. I have to say, I was so excited to learn that you were from Walden. This is a town in the heart of Colorado Moose Country near State Forest State Park. And there was a day when I wanted to see some moose, so I headed up to Walden. And I did sense, despite its beauty, that the town was quite empty feeling. Was it that way growing up? No, it it really was not. It was a very vibrant town when I grew up there. Uh, we had a movie theater. We had like a natural food store in town. I mean, it was it was a very vibrant place. My dad played in a country and western band at the local Elkhorn Cafe and Bar most Saturday nights, and it was always a very happening place. I just saw over the course of my life that the town just really declined very slowly but surely. Yeah, what does it feel like to you today when you go back? It's much smaller, and the demographic is much older as well. And it feels like a lot of the storefronts are boarded up, and you know there's still the signs, like the Elkhorn Bar and Cafe. The sign is still there to remind us that it was once this amazing place that we used to love to go. But now it's been left sitting, and apparently the foundation is actually rotting away, and it's been sitting empty for now a couple decades. I think the first business you mentioned with some exuberance was the movie theater. Is the movie theater gone? It is being remodeled now. The movie theater was purchased by Jim Moore, a wealthy businessman from Oklahoma, Um, And he has been purchasing a lot of businesses on Main Street, actually, um, over the last couple of, oh, about 25 years, I'd say. He started, he moved in and started building the largest log home in North America, potentially in the world. This thing is going to be, once it's done, if it ever is finished, the size of three football fields. I mean, it's enormous. I I actually got to witness it once. So he moved in and started um, working on this home and also started buying up businesses on Main Street back in the 90s, including the movie theater. Everybody was so excited to have somebody who was going to remodel our town and and bring back those um, heydays when it was so vibrant. 
But then the pine beetle moved into his property and all of the trees started dying and he started needing to mitigate, you know, all these trees that were dying on his land. Uh, And he just got very discouraged by that, ended up kind of giving up on all of his projects in North Park, not only his home, but also all of the businesses that he had been remodeling. And this is really an illustration of what a complex relationship small towns have with the ultra-wealthy. Walden's a good example of that. So Jim Moore, this Oklahoma businessman, starts buying up most of Main Street in the 90s, hoping to revamp the town. After decades of letting storefronts stay empty and allowing Walden to shrink, he returned a couple years ago with this same goal. Here's part of your conversation with him. Well, the realtor find me the worst buildings in Walden. She looked at me and said, what do you mean the worst buildings? I said, I want the worst buildings. She said, why do you want the worst buildings? I said, because I want to make sure that they're fixed up. And I don't want someone to just buy it and leave it the way it is. This struck me as a contradiction, since he'd done the same thing himself. And I wasn't sure why we should trust that he wouldn't do it again. So... I pressed him. I mean, some of those did get left for 15 years? Absolutely. What what do you say to that? I think I failed in that regard. But because I wasn't here, I would say I still had in the back of my mind what I wanted to do. But actually what has happened in that same period of time, more buildings went vacant and more buildings deteriorated. So I certainly didn't make a positive contribution during that time period. Uh, But I'm going to make up for it now. What do you think Jim Moore illustrates? And do you have any confidence that he will be able to fulfill his word? I think it illustrates that we are seeing just a real insurgence of the super wealthy into the American West. We have what some call the Club of 26, 26 millionaires and billionaires that live in North Park. And it's a sign that there's just like a a real interest by the super wealthy to move into these areas. They're buying up, you know, a lot of land. But then what is their, um, their motives? It's not exactly clear. I think that there's an interest in the super wealthy to try and find like some sort of a place where they can feel authentic and that they want to sort of move into this idea of the West and become part of that. But like with Jim Moore, do they have a feeling of responsibility for the communities that they are affecting? I'm not so sure about that. Yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of tax reasons, too, that you might move out West and declare yourself a rancher. That's right. And that that was something I definitely was looking into. You know, what were these motives? Were they kind of buying up these businesses that they could maybe sort of shelve for a while? And that way they could sort of write off these, you know, especially like with Jim Moore, you know, write off some of these businesses that are failing businesses, essentially. So that was one of the motives that I kind of looked into. Uh, It's kind of hard to know what those motives always are. But yeah, I do think that there's something there too. In some ways, this new season of the modern West is about ghost towns. But I think when people picture ghost towns, they imagine a set of like an old spaghetti Western with tumbleweeds rolling by. And and you think really that the U.S. gets something wrong about ghost towns. Yeah. You know, um, the uh, ghost town that I went and explored was the oldest town in North Park, which is Teller City. It was an old 
silver mining town. And it boomed for about eight years. But during those eight years, it had all the makings of a real town. You know, it had a school, it had a newspaper, it had all of those things, a mayor, the works. You know, they brought the mail in from Grand Lake on snowshoes in the winter over the never summer range. So, and I know lots of people (laughs) around the state know that that range. And that is just some craziness, but they had to make it work, right? They had to have a school. They had to have a post office. I ended up talking to an economics historian, Samuel Western, and he gave me a really great definition of ghost towns in which he told me that a town is officially dying when it loses its post office and its school. And you meditate on that in the podcast. Walden's post office is okay, but its school? My elementary now sits boarded up. All the kids are now housed in the high school, and they only attend four days a week. So according to Western's ghost town rule, that makes Walden on the verge of extinction. That's scary news. But Western gave me some hope for my hometown, too. He has some advice for mayors like Jim Destin. He says if small towns want to save themselves... Look at their community through the eyes of women. Through the eyes of women. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so this was something that Samuel Western brought up that I thought was just totally fascinating. He pointed out that one of the ways that maybe some of these small towns could actually start to visualize a future for themselves is to imagine what it is that that would make their town attractive to women. So, for instance, a lot of these small towns are boom towns. So they have actually built themselves around jobs that are are really, you know, best suited for men. Oil and gas jobs, coal mining jobs, timber industry jobs. I mean, that's why I moved to Walden, because my dad was taking jobs in all of those industries. And And maybe we um, should say that these are jobs that have been traditionally suited to men, if not best suited, I think you said, but but traditionally suited. Yeah. True, exactly. Um, They have traditionally been mostly male-oriented jobs. And what Samuel Western is pointing out is that there are other kinds of jobs, especially in healthcare, that a lot of women are, are interested in and have the skills for and would attract them to move into communities like Walden and other small towns. And he gave some examples of towns that were successfully doing that. He also pointed out that they might want to look at childcare and shopping opportunities, ways to take care of your family. Are those opportunities available for women and for families in general? He thinks that if people look at how to grow their town through that lens, these towns could really succeed. Fascinating, because the demographics might start to change. Maybe you would get younger people, families with children, but they're not going to come to a place where they're not supported. What, what other types of diversification needs to happen in a community like Walden to bring it back to life, if that's the goal? Another thing that I have found, and this is something that Walden is exploring, is making sure that all of the voices in the community are really being heard. And so they have found a national organization that's helping walk them through this, It is called Heart and Soul, and it's a program for small towns like Walden. And what they're doing is they're really trying to 
talk to the community and hear from voices that maybe aren't heard from some of the underserved communities, the, the elderly, immigrant, you know, community, and hear what they want. And then try to set goals around some of these less heard voices so that they can really start to grow the community in the direction that everyone wants, rather than just a few people that are have maybe traditionally sat in positions of leadership in these communities. I mean, it makes me wonder so if, that, if Jim Moore is listening, right? Because he's got the bucks and he, he, he could be very influential, this Oklahoma businessman, in, in what the direction is in shaping that. That's right. And I and that's what I really was hoping to call for in this podcast um, was for people who are in positions of leadership or in, you know, that do have the money to make some of these things happen, that they start partnering with the community themselves, finding the leaders. I went to a beautification committee meeting uh, that was meeting at a cafe and the entire group of people that showed up for that meeting were all women. And so really hearing from people who maybe aren't serving on the town council, who aren't necessarily running for office, but are doing a lot of just the hard work of keeping a town afloat. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Melody Edwards is our guest. She's the host of the Modern West podcast, which comes from Wyoming Public Media. And it is in general about how the American West is changing. This particular new season focuses on rural Western communities, including uh, Melody's own hometown, Walden, Colorado, which is west of Fort Collins. You know, I've heard a lot about rural broadband as the, I don't know if I want to call it a silver bullet, but as a major force in being able to transform rural Colorado. That, you know, we've got a beautiful state, beautiful rural areas, and if you gave businesses high-speed internet access in those places, they would move there and transform these economies. What did you hear about that? That, I think, is one of the hopes for helping towns like mine. And I know that uh, the electric company is working on bringing in broadband to North Park. One of the problems with bringing it there is that it is such an isolated area. Mm. There's no way to kind of loop it through. It has to go in and then it just has a dead end and is kind of stuck there. So it's there's not a lot of motivation for these broadband companies to want to tackle a project like that. But I do think that with the pandemic, so many people are starting to realize that they can live anywhere. And you know, North Park is just one of the most beautiful places in the world. And a lot of people would love to be able to walk out their door and go and hike in the, the Zirkle wilderness. Uh, they can go fish in the headwaters of the North Platte. Those are the kinds of things that they could do hmm. if they can solve that uh, problem of broadband. Yeah, the pandemic, it occurs to me, just makes your podcast so much more timely because it is resulting in a reassessment of what the office is about where we do our work and what kind of work we want to do. You mentioned Teller City, this ghost town, and it strikes me that your hope, um, if this is true, Melody, is that you you don't want Walden to become Teller City. That's right. Do you think that's true? I'm, I think that there's a value 
to small towns. And I know that there's a lot of people who are kind of like, well, maybe some of these towns, maybe they deserve to die. And I think that there's a bit of an attitude about small towns that, you know, they haven't done what they needed to do to change and keep up with the times. But I think that there is something that we need to recognize that small towns have to bring to the rest of the world, that they are a microcosm of how democracies work, how communities thrive, and that they're worth saving, that they have something to teach us. And so I think that that is one of the real goals of this podcast, is exploring why it is that we do want to save small towns. Thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Melody Edwards hosts The Modern West from Wyoming Public Media. Season two of the podcast, Out Now, centers on rural communities, including Walden, Colorado. I mentioned earlier that the last time I was in Walden, it was to try and spot a moose, something I'd never done before. This was pre-pandemic, six years ago. A friend and I took a road trip on Memorial Day weekend and trekked into Colorado moose country. Okay, so we're walking on the trail behind the visitor center at State Forest State Park. And the ranger told us that the best time to see a moose is in the morning or the evening. We're here in the early afternoon, so I imagine that reduces our chances. But they've said that this trail is not a bad place to potentially spot a moose. We're in the mountains, roughly two hours west of Fort Collins, an area known as North Park. In 1995, the state legislature deemed it moose-viewing capital of Colorado. Signs along Highway 14 warn drivers to slow down for moose at night. So far, though, our hike has been mooseless. On the trail, we have seen some leavings. I'm not sure if that's from a moose or not. We're going to go to the visitor center and show the ranger a photo, see if she can recognize moose poop. Back at the visitor center, where you can buy moose clothing, moose candy, and postcards of moose traipsing through a local cemetery, I show a park employee my photographic evidence. That is moose scat. That is moose scat, you have no doubt. No doubt. The scat looks fresh, she says, so we can't have missed the moose by much, but we decide to drive to another spot in the nearby Route National Forest. First though, lunch in Walden, Colorado. And where else would we eat but the Moose Creek Cafe? Our server, Sherry Beisel, realizes we don't live in Walden. After all, only 585 people do. And when we tell her what we're up to, she tells us about her most recent moose encounter, a prolonged one. At my house, the mama and the baby were there for two days, two nights. The camp out on your lawn? Yes, bedded down in my backyard. Beisel emailed me pictures of her visitors and showed me a video of the baby moose lapping up snow from her yard. After eating at the Moose Creek Cafe and still seeing no moose anywhere near Walden, Colorado, we've driven a little further down the road, turned at Cowdery, Colorado, and we're headed towards the mountains. Maybe this will be where we see the moose. We've been on a dirt road now for several miles and just entered the Route National Forest. And there was a sign that said, be careful, moose in the area, watch your shot. I guess with the idea that people are hunting deer and elk and are not allowed to shoot moose. 
but we're taking this as a good sign that moose are in the area. Okay, on the road, we just saw the same style poop that we saw earlier that the ranger confirmed was moose poop. We're also by this meandering stream and a lot of standing water, and moose are riparian creatures, so we're thinking the odds might be best here. We stop to hang around this idyllic spot for a while. Ducks float on the water. There are big nests in the trees, maybe hawks or eagles' nests. Still, though, no moose. But there are dark clouds gathering. It's about to pour. And given that we're on a dirt road with no cell service, we decide to call it a day. No moose for me in moose country. Oh, well, any excuse to go back to North Park, this expansive, wonderfully remote part of Colorado. Early this morning my mother said, get out of bed you sleepyhead, grab your pack, it's time to go, we're going to look for moose tracks. Oh, oh, my hike say, to find moose, find which yielded none from oh, back in 2014 in State Forest State Park and the Route National Forest. Finally today, an invitation to a holiday party, but you don't have to worry about awkward conversation or even leaving the safety of your home. Our big Christmas special is usually in a theater, but that's, of course, not possible right now. So we've made a TV show instead, and we want you to attend the virtual premiere. One of our headliners is Colorado native and Broadway star Beth Malone, who will channel our muse, Judy Garland. She was so fragile and so raw and open, and and she was like a vessel for something bigger, like it just traveled through her little body and out. Merry Christmas, have a very, very Merry Christmas. Dream about your heart's desire, Christmas Eve, when you retire. Santa Claus will stop And I know he'll drop exactly what you wanted from your chimney top. This year's Colorado Matters holiday extravaganza has singing and laughter and storytelling and a lot of heart. Buy tickets to the virtual premiere next Wednesday night at cpr.org slash holiday. That's cpr.org slash holiday. We'll even throw in an exclusive CPR cookie cutter. Avery Lill and I hope to see you there a week from tonight. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.